Let's open our Bibles to Acts 27, the second to last chapter of this great book of the Bible that we've been really working our way through for quite some time as a church. We're going to uh, shift into the final chapter of Acts 28 within the scripture reading, and um, next Sunday will be the culmination, the conclusion of this uh, long sermon series. And then after next Sunday, um, maybe some of you read in the Orchard Weekly, I'm going to do a short sermon series on lessons from my sabbatical, things that I uh, jotted down in my journal, uh, things that the Lord revealed to me as I was reading uh, the Bible and praying and spending time in, in meditation and thought. Um, that'll be about a three or four week sermon series, different lessons that I've learned and things I noticed. And so um, I haven't decided what I'm going to preach on after that. I'm going to think about that this week. But um, if you have any ideas of books that we should look through, I'm toying with the idea of the Canons of Dort for a little while, maybe about nine or ten um, sermons on the Canons of Dort because I've preached through the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession already. And um, if you have an idea, I'd love to, to hear and, t- and talk to you about uh, the next Sunday evening sermon series after my pilgrimage stories are done. So for today's purposes, though, we're going to be looking at Acts 27, starting at actually verse 21. You'll see on the screen it says verse 21 in the bulletin. It says verse 27. I really want to get to um, Paul's prophecy of what's going to happen, and that includes some of what Pastor Zach covered last week, and so we'll have some overlap between last week and this week. And um, <clears throat> was able, I was able to watch, by the way, last Sunday evening service where uh, Zach shared those really interesting videos of these uh, places that Paul is traveling through, and today we'll get to the story of the shipwreck that the Apostle Paul endured and how difficult that must have been, but how faithful God was through it. So the scripture reading is a little longer this evening, I recognize. It's, it's a fairly lengthy passage, and I know that sometimes people think they've got to remember every detail from the scripture reading. Well, this is more of just sit back and listen to the story kind of a scripture reading and, and soak it in and take it in um, almost as you would listening to uh, a thrilling story, which it certainly is. So we will look at Acts 27, starting at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, this is on the journey from uh, Caesarea to Rome. Paul has been arrested. He's on his way to Rome to stand trial. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss because there's a storm raging against them. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms, so it's getting shallower. The, the fear, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, 
they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, and not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with the beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them to the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, this is Luke writing this, we then learned that the island was called Malta, The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune had come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I wonder if anyone here has ever been in a ship out at sea during a storm. Has anyone, maybe a show of hands, ever been in a ship at sea? Sometimes you could watch these YouTube videos of what it's like on a cruise where there are stormy seas and um, 
maybe we shouldn't laugh all that much about such videos, but there is one where the cruise is listing so much backside to side that the chairs are just flying from one side to the other. And this was, of course, a terrifying experience for people who were actually on that boat. There are few experiences in life that could make you feel more helpless than being on a ship out in the ocean or, uh, in my case, in, in a very large lake like Lake Michigan, and there's nothing you can de- do because the storm is coming. During my childhood, I spent a lot of time on boats, particularly on smaller lakes in Wisconsin that you wouldn't have to be all that afraid of during a storm. But then in my teenage years, um, my uncle had a large boat and my father bought a, a large boat as well, and so we would go out in Lake Michigan, about an, a mile offshore. And I was never in a big storm out in Lake Michigan, although I do remember there were times where the waves got fairly large, you know, seven or eight foot swells, and the boat would be rocking like a cork. And I remember feeling seasick out on that boat where you could hardly see the shoreline. And so the, while the waves were nothing compared to what Paul and the people in this story would have faced, I can certainly say it was not a pleasant experience. It wasn't even raining or or all that stormy. It was just these waves that wouldn't stop. And you feel like there's nothing you can do because really, in essence, there isn't. Not only did it make me feel physically sick, but the psychological sort of, of turmoil of just knowing you can't do anything about it makes the suffering that much worse. Imagine enduring that for 14 days, for two whole weeks. Here's how Paul described how the passengers felt in the ship on the third day. In verses before what we read, Paul had said, On the third day, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's how they felt on the third day, and there's still more, 11 more days of being out at sea in the storm. So even though there was nothing that they could do to save themselves, Everyone on that ship had a decision to make about how they would respond, at least in a spiritual sense. There's certainly a time for practical plans, and there were a few practical plans, uh, like even eating a meal in the middle of the storm. That could be very wise. But, but think spiritually about how these people responded or how we respond when there's just nothing we can do to change our situation. These people were implicitly asked a spiritual question. Would they trust God? Would they trust Paul's prophecy that all of them would survive? Would they believe Paul's command to not be afraid? Amazingly, even the soldiers believed it. And they showed that they believed Paul's instruction by jettisoning the life rafts. Did you notice that detail as I was reading the story? They were going to get in and go on shore to sort of save their own hide, but but Paul says you You ought not do that because you will die. All those who remain in the ship will survive. And so they could have said to Paul, we don't believe you. We don't believe that prophecy. Certainly these would not have been Christian sailors that were bringing them to Rome. They could have said, we're getting out of here. We're going to save ourselves. But God enabled them in the storm, amazingly, to trust Paul and do what he said. The right response to the storm is what Paul says in verse 25 of what we read. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly 
as I have been told. That is the right response in the storm, whether it is a literal storm like this or some sort of spiritual or emotional storm that you're in. Take heart. Trust God that what he has said will happen. Putting ourselves in the place of those people in that storm, we should ask, what has God said about how he preserves and helps his people through these kinds of situations? There are many storms in the Bible. I want to do a quick rundown through what happens in different storms of the Scriptures and how God responds and how his people, us, are called to respond as well. Sometimes God, God calms the storm, and it's just done. Of course, you know this is what Jesus did when he walked on water into the boat, and the storm was raging in the Sea of Galilee so badly they all thought they were going to die. Jesus says only a few words, peace, be still. The storm stops, and the disciples wonder, who is this who commands the winds and the waves? So at times, God does that in our lives. And we're dealing with turmoil, we're battling against temptation, we're fighting against some, some issue that we see and, and really wrestling with it and praying to God and all of a sudden he says, be still. And we get a sense of God's power, just like what Jesus showed to his disciples. Even if that doesn't happen, do you believe that God can do that? Jesus turns to his disciples after he calms the storm and says, Oh, you of little faith, didn't you trust me? Didn't you trust that when you're in the boat with me, you're safe? This is also what he would say to, to us or what he would say even to these in, those in this ship. Trust me, trust me through it. Sometimes God throws you into the storm because it was your fault. Because even the storm itself was your fault. Thinking of the story of Jonah where Jonah is, is running the opposite direction from what God had called him to do. And the result of Jonah's disobedience is that all of the people in that ship are in danger because this storm has, has um, uh, impacted them. And so looking at a story like Jonah, we should at least ask a question when we're in a storm. Is this difficult situation that I'm facing my own fault. One of the most difficult things about the Christian life is asking that question and actually being open to the answer that it could be yes. Um, thinking of, of people with addictions who just can't keep a job and people who have all sorts of, of sins that really impact all kinds of relationships, family, coworkers, neighbors, and they're feeling that they're always in a storm Sometimes it's because they're of their own behavior. But like I said, one of the most difficult things is to discern, is this storm brought on me because of something I have done? Or, like Job, is this something that God is allowing to happen in my life to purify my faith and he's going to bring me through? It's a very difficult thing and so we need God's wisdom in asking a question like that. Is the storm because of my sin? Or is God just refining me and so we shouldn't beat ourselves up that all of the bad that's coming upon us is our fault or something that we've done? It did happen for Jonah, though, so we should ask that question occasionally if we're suffering. Sometimes God preserves his people 
especially through a storm, and also uses that same storm for judgment on those who hate God and hate the kingdom of God. That's the story of Noah and the story of the Red Sea. So we see in Noah's Ark, starting at Genesis 6, and the Red Sea narrative, starting at Exodus 15, that God uses this storm as a form of judgment against those who are against him, and also, at the very same time, God shows his power to preserve his people. So this one storm accomplishes two things, judgment against God's enemies and God's power and care and faithfulness, his covenant-keeping love for his own people as he stores Noah and his family in the ark and as he parts the waters of the Red Sea so Israel can walk through on dry ground. So because of God's great mercy, he preserves his people from that judgment that comes through the storm. And in today's story, he preserved every person on that ship, regardless of their faith, because there were those on this ship who were, did you notice in the passage, it seemed as though they were preserved for Paul's sake, because God had an intention for Paul to get to Rome, to stand before Caesar, and so everyone on that ship was safe, um, according to the text it says, because Paul was there and and needed to get somewhere. Of course, God had plans for each person, but that's... um, a part of, of why God preserved them. Sometimes God allows a storm to end human life, but that certainly can't be interpreted as God's final judgment on a person's soul. And this happens also in the scriptures. Because Paul is eventually imprisoned in Rome, and he dies in that imprisonment. And so although he's delivered from the literal storm in this story, he's delivered from shipwreck, Um, He's going to endure persecution and and die in imprisonment while he's in Rome. And there are these times that this happens in the scriptures. In Luke 13, Jesus tells a story of a tragic event and says, you shouldn't interpret the death of some people because of a storm or some some, uh, accident as God's automatic judgment on those people because um, at times God allows it for his own purposes. Luke 13, 4 and 5, Jesus says, Those 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And so Jesus is saying here that don't just assume that because some tragedy has befallen a person or because they're in a storm, that it's automatically God's judgment upon them. But Jesus says, Take note of those things when they do happen and repent so that you might know it's not happening to you um, as it happened to Jonah. So this means that we can't automatically associate suffering with sin. And I think that comes through in this story from Acts 27 and 28 as well. We should ask the question, though, like Jonah asked it, like Job asked it, like David asked it in his Psalms, we should ask the question, is the storm because of me? And hopefully God will give us wisdom in that. The Christian also has to be open to the possibility that the storm could take our earthly lives. And so we keep our souls steadfastly set on God no matter what. That we would not have a shipwreck of our souls, actually, as Paul um, wrote and warned Timothy about. So we've established that there will be many times in life when we are feeling like I did out on the waves of Lake Michigan, or 
like these people did in the Mediterranean Sea, utterly helpless, unable to fix our situation, there are going to be those times in our lives. But we also see in this story that God's plan is good and this plan will be fulfilled. What he says will happen, will happen. And I love the details that Luke includes in the story to reveal God's faithfulness. He even says how many people were on board the ship to the number. 276 people. 276 people made in God's image who mattered to God, who he had a plan for. That's a lot of people, actually. There were people who couldn't even swim who survived that shipwreck because it was God's will. Isn't that a wonderful detail in the story that those who swim are just told, jump out and swim to shore in the waves. Those who can't, there's a plan that God inspires for the soldiers to enact for their sakes to hang on to a board or, or to, to something that floats and kick their feet. I, I have, in reading the story, kind of imagining soldiers out there in the water telling people how to kick their feet and get to shore because they're unfamiliar with being in the water. These were many desert cultures, and so they wouldn't have learned to swim at a young age like so many people do in, in California. And so there's all this happening, and God is working through it all to preserve 276 people. So it's interesting to note how this happens, that it's, it's God's will, and he ordains it, desires that they would be spared, but that will also requires that people cooperate and come up with a good plan and obey him along the way. And so that reminds us that, that God doesn't just deliver us um, in spite of ourselves, but at times gives us good decision-making. In the case of people who couldn't swim, the soldiers say, they don't just say, well, they're going to survive, so toss them all in, you know. <laughs> They, they say, well, we need to think about how best they will survive and get to the shore. And so they come up with a good plan in order to get people there. Now, it's ultimately up to God, but he calls us to cooperate, to make a good plan, even during a storm. That's also proven by this episode of Paul getting bitten by the viper on the beach. That God's plan is not going to be thwarted or ruined by big things like a storm or by small things like a snake. His plan can't be foiled by powerful corporations today or governments or the media or a corrupt justice system. His plan for your life won't be ruined by a rude coworker or an unjust boss or a serious disease that, just as the case in these people's lives, is the case for the Christian today that God's plan will be fulfilled. Among those who belong to God, none will be lost. None. I know this congregation pretty well, I think, but I don't even know exactly how many people are members of this church. I got that question a lot of times during my sabbatical as I would visit different churches. People would be curious about Ammon Valley. They'd want to know a little bit about it. The question that comes up pretty quickly, how many people attend your church? And I would, I would usually say it's, it's probably about 250 members or so, and on, on a typical Sunday, you know, 170 to 190 or so. It, it, it's hard to, to really gauge at times how many people are actually in a church. But God knows. There, it's not just our church that's numbered. It, it's the hairs on our heads 
that are numbered. And there's reference to that in this passage, that not a hair from the, of, of the heads of these soldiers would be, would be lost without the will of the Father. And so, as I think about our own church, you know, I, I was looking at, there's this new district list of names, you know, of all the people that each person made in the image of God who matters to God and how much God knows the hairs on each person's head. And, and I was just looking at this while I was reading this passage. It was next, next to my Bible, just by God's providence. And I thought, maybe I should think of this list almost like the ship manifest. You know, the list of people on the boat. And how God cares for everyone in a way that I could not. In a way that a parent even cannot. And God has a perfect plan, a good plan for each one. You know, it, it would be um, good for us at times to realize how God is caring not just for us, but for, for everyone around us in the same way that he cared for these people, the 276 who he delivered from that storm. The Lord has promised to bless and keep us, to bless and keep us, to give us peace, to turn his face towards us, be gracious to us, and give shalom to the person who is in the storm. So we're called upon by God to cooperate and live in a way that's wise and biblical and faithful and loving and logical, but it is ultimately up to him. It's ultimately up to him, and that is good. When I would say it's ultimately up to God, for some people they would say, oh, I'm not so sure about that because I want to control some things. But brothers and sisters, when I say it's ultimately up to God, that is the best news that you could hear about the plan for your life. Because it's in his capable hands. As the, the, the Heidelberg Catechism refers to him, it, it is in his fatherly hands, his fatherly care for us that we are kept. So you might wonder, how do we apply this as, as I close? Um, Think about the parting blessing of a worship service that is a very important part to our Reformed liturgy. That as you go, you are blessed by God to be kept in him, to be filled with the Spirit, with peace. And, and as I offer that blessing each week, I, I sometimes think these people are, are going, some of them are going back into storms. Some of them are walking back into a home that is is a difficult place to be or a workplace that is very difficult to be or thinking about uh, economics and politics and big issues that at times war against our souls and our peace of mind. And when I raise my hands at the end of the worship service to bless the congregation, this, that's the image that's in the back of my mind at times that even despite all that, despite all the storms, God is going to keep you and you can trust him. So you're heading into a week knowing there will be difficulties, there will be temptations, there will be arguments, there will be misunderstandings, people will disrespect you, things won't go your way when you're standing in line at a store, all from small things to, to huge things as well, like fires and governments and wars. You're heading into a week full of all that kind of stuff and, and God will give you peace. His people, peace. It's the truth that we teach children when we sing, Jesus loves me. We are weak, but he is strong. 
That's what the storm reveals. We are weak, but he is strong. That's what's revealed when, on all these healings, too, on, on the island of Malta where they are, that, that these people who are just delivered by God and by his providence sort of launched out onto the beach, almost like Jonah again, right? <laughs> there they are on Malta, and he just starts healing these people, and he's a blessing to Publius and his household and people who are sick. And so it's by God's sovereign design that that storm, that they're not only delivered from it, but even directed in a way that they would be a blessing to people who live on Malta, which is still a place that you can go today where people live. And so the purpose of reading a harrowing story like this is that you would believe that God is over the storms in your life. That you would believe that God is over the storms in this world. That is a constant theme in Scripture. Early on in my time here at Ammon Valley, I did a sermon series on the waters and how waters are chaotic, dangerous. That's so often the word picture that you see in the Scriptures for the sea, the waters, the storm. And I, I wouldn't put you to it or ask anybody, maybe on the spot, but the final message in that um, was from Revelation where, it's, where John sees the heavens and there is no longer any sea. He sees peace. So God delivers us from the storms of this world and this life into the perfect tranquility of a life with him forever. We are weak to deliver ourselves from it, but he is strong. So let's conclude this evening by reading together the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, Lord's Day 10 teaches us about the providence of God. And by providence, kind of a bigger theological word, we're referring to how God provides, God cares for, God sustains, God orchestrates, God ordains all the events of our lives in the way that is going to bring him glory and be a blessing to his elect. So when we talk of providence, we remember God is in control. God knows the future. God has a plan for his creation. God's plan cannot be altered or ruined, and that's a core belief for all Christians. So Q&A 28 of the Catechism asks a question, why does that matter to us? Why does the doctrine of God's providence matter to us? Let's actually read this responsibly, responsibly, responsively, uh, after I read the question. Brothers and sisters, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this, this story. And we know that these people in the middle of that storm were not, uh, were not able to see perfectly what was going to happen beyond it. But they thanked you in the middle of the storm and celebrated a meal, giving thanks to you for the provision of bread. And God, so we thank you now 
for the provision that you give us of a church, of your word, of grace through Jesus Christ, of friends, of family members, of a community that you surround us in countless ways with blessing, no matter what we're enduring. God, we pray that we would be like those faithful people in that ship and that we would trust you, that we would worship you, that we would even thank you because we believe your word. Oh God, help us to live in that way all the time. For your name's sake and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.